hakika wema nazo fadhili hakika wema nazo Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week, I get to sit down with a living composer and talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. Join me and take a peek inside the mind of a composer. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. Here we are at the beginning of a brand new season of interviews, and it is my immense pleasure today to be talking with Roger Emerson. Roger is one of the most performed choral composer arrangers in the world. He has over 900 titles in print and over 30 million copies in circulation. He graduated from Southern Oregon University with a degree in music education. And Roger has been the recipient of ASCAP's Standard Award for 20 years running, and his works have been performed at the White House, Carnegie Hall, and the Kennedy Center. Roger Emerson, thank you so much for joining me today on Movable Dough. Oh, it's a, it's a treat for me, Steve. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right. So I was doing some reading on your website, and I saw that you grew up in Southern California in the 1950s in a very yes. musical family. Yes. Uh, so was everyone in your family musical? Everyone. Uh, uh, my, I've got two older brothers, uh, actually just one. My oldest brother passed here a few years ago, but um, our house was just filled with music. My, my mother um, was very musical. She arranged for live radio in the, in the 30s and 40s oh, wow. and had a singing group. And uh, then when I was growing up, she had a group that was, uh, that was at the house. I remember that sang uh, like high lows and four freshman kinds of arrangements. So, uh, and then um, she, she and uh, my stepdad, my biological father had died when I was real young. She remarried when I was about 10. They loved all kinds of music. She was a real jazz buff, loved uh, George Shearing and Ahmad Jamal and Pete Jolly and, uh, you know, Oscar Peterson. And at the same time, uh, she loved Debussy. So I remember Sunday Sunday mornings, of course, I was a kid and I, I wasn't too turned into classical music, but <laughs> but uh, they would, she'd be doing Saison and Debussy and Brandenburg concertos and then musical theater uh, at seven. Uh, you know, um, before she remarried my stepdad, she was a single mom for like 10 years. So she took us three boys to see the movie Oklahoma uh -huh. when I was seven. And I demanded, I said, I've got to have that album. I learned every song <laughs> on it. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, I'm a real mutt. I'm a musical mutt. Yeah, because, that's quite the eclectic mix. Yeah, but, you know, it has served me well, um, you know, o over these years because I, I like to do, do things, you know, across the board. Uh, I don't do much classical music, although I've done a few additions, you know, for middle school of some of the classics. But um, the other thing that, that sort of shaped my career is, you know, I, I got in a rock and roll band when I was about 13 or 14 and uh, through high school. And um, we were we were lifting songs off, pop songs off of records every Sunday. You know, yeah, we were a cover that. band. Yeah. Called and the, so the nervous system, the nervous that? system. Yeah. Yes. The Argonauts. And then the, they <laughs> changed the name of the nervous system. Why? I don't know. Um, but we were working all the time in Southern California. We were in the battle of the bands and, and it was a great, it was just really fun. And, uh, and of course I'm learning now how much I learned by lifting songs off of records that I basically still do, you know? So, sure. so, so what, I mean, is that sort of how you, found your way into music was through that band and 
Well, you know, we, and Rick, again, we sang at our home. Uh, we had, a, mom had a grand piano and, and there was just music all the time. My, my first singing experience was in first grade. I remember for some reason, the teacher must have heard me sing or something and, and knew I could match pitch. And, and I remember singing along uh, on, on stage uh, to the, the uh, square dance record, Oh, Johnny, Oh, Johnny, Oh. <laughs> And and uh, and I must have just sung with you know probably in octaves with a with a, yeah. a male singer, uh, and then I had a wonderful uh, elementary music teacher. I mean she was traveling. You know I'd see, we'd see her like once a week or or whatever at noon. I read a Cushing who later became the uh, supervisor of music for Anaheim Public Schools, and she was. She was just really sharp. Yeah, I mean, it was all about focus. I mean, she had a limited amount of time. So boy, you got in there and you sang. <laughs> and I, I, I distinctly remember, you know, talk about embarrassing moments you remember is, is I missed a rehearsal and her coming out on the playground and grabbing me and say, hey, it's it's choir day. <laughs> uh, so I sympathize, uh, you know, <laughs> when I started teaching elementary middle school, you do whatever you can to get those kids in there. But uh, we did a big festival and we sang a scaled down version of the Wilhowski battle hymn. And uh, uh, yeah, it was it was just great training. But then I got into junior high and it was only girls glee or marching band. Uh -huh. And so I continued, I started playing guitar when I was 10. I had a great teacher. So I was playing and singing, but not in school music got into high school and it was not a cool thing to do. I was in student government in high school. And so I didn't really get into choral music per se until college at College of the Siskiyous with Kirby Shaw and George Mattis. So um, yeah, I have a really weird <laughs> trajectory to uh, to the choral music. So yeah. So when you were seven and singing along with square dance music, did you right. did you see yourself becoming a musician or did you have other goals when you were seven, what, what was the first thing you remember you know, wanting to be? It's funny because I have reflected on that and, and I don't think it was ever really a conscious decision. Uh, it was just what I was doing all the time. You know, I didn't really think about the fact that, wow, um, music could be a career. I mean, I was mowing lawns and, and I was at, at 13, my mom worked for a, um, a, uh, educational, um, record company and I was a shipping clerk. And so I bought my first guitar amp. I remember it's like 27 bucks a month and I had to make this money uh, basically pack packaging up uh, educational records and shipping them out. So, um, and of course playing in a rock and roll band, we're making good money and you know, six times a week at 50 bucks a man when the minimum wage was a buck 65. So uh, I sort of had money to burn, but I never really thought about being a teacher I was, I was teaching guitar, but I didn't think about being a school music teacher at all uh, until I got with Kirby Shaw and, mm -hmm. and saw what he was doing. And, you know, he's a fabulous musician and, and a very funny guy. We just hit it off in the beginning. And I think I, I sort of saw myself, you know, you have to see someone that you can sort of emulate. And I go, I think I'd like to do, I could do that. Yeah. Maybe at a middle school, not at a college. You know, you never feel like you can be as good as your mentor. Um, funny thing, Kirby called me yesterday and had a finale question. <laughs> He's like 80 now and said, hey, can you help me out? I go, sure, I owe you my career. <laughs> so, yeah. That's great. So, yeah, interesting so, path. Yeah. You know, most of the music I know from you um, has been your choral arrangements of popular songs. Yes. Uh, some of the ones that I've either sung or conducted uh, include arrangements of Seasons of Love, the Frozen Choral Suite, Don't Stop Believing, In the Still of the Night, among many others. Wow. Thank so, you. How did how did you get into arranging? Like, what was it that drew? Well, you? Um, you know, of course, 
even in my rock band, you know, 15, 16, 17, I was writing out like background vocal parts, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, but then, uh, and I was writing, trying to write pop songs. I was trying to get a hit record, you know, I had hair and, uh, <laughs> thought I was going to be a rock star and, and cut some demos, uh, but nothing, nothing came to fruition. I guess it was meant to be because when I ended up at, with, at the community college with Kirby and George, um, uh, I, uh, I know that, that, of course, Kirby was doing all the arranging there, but when I went on to Southern Oregon University, um, uh, with, um, Dr. Tumbleson, I arranged some things for our Coraliers group up there. I think he just said, hey, would you do an arrangement of this? Or, okay, you know, and and you just dive in and do it, you know. Yeah. The, the good news, I've got good ears. You know, I'm not as trained as many, many uh, arrangers and orchestrators are, but, you know, I'm, I love to sing. I'm an average baritone, and I basically um, – have good ears. So I go, Oh, yeah, this should work. And so that's where I that's some of my first arrangements would have been for the choral ears. And then when I started teaching, and I had a K eight position, and everything was going great, except my seventh, eighth grade choir just sucked. <laughs> I call it I, it was soprano alto mud, you know, uh, voicing. <laughs> and, and I stumbled on Joyce Eiler, speaking of you're in that Seattle, mm -hmm. Tacoma area. Yeah, I've I stumbled got on of her pieces in my oh library. my gosh. Well, she really got it. She was a middle school teacher, and and I stumbled on her piece, Brighten My Soul with Sunshine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a little call and response. Uh, you got to brighten up my soul. And the guys go, brighten up my soul. They had two notes, you know, brighten up my soul. And suddenly it worked. And, and I had this sort of epiphany, and I said, Roger, you call yourself a songwriter, and here's the formula that Joyce is using this three-part mix formula with a lot of call and response. Why don't you try something? And I, of course, I did uh, Sinner Man, which turned out to be a sort of my iconic piece. And how it got into print, I'll tell you about later if you ask. But <laughs> long story, as most, you know, ventures are. But uh, so that's when I really started. And I, and um, Kirby was doing a what he called vocal instrumental ensemble. It was the precursor of vocal jazz ensemble because he always had four or five horns. So I was teaching band and choir. So at the middle school, I'd write some unison lines for horns and rhythm section to play along with my kids. Uh -huh. Like uh, People Gotta Be Free uh, was one of my early arrangements. And, and it was really exciting and kids loved it. You know, they loved the fact that you could blend those two and the singers got excited because they had a band playing for them. And, uh, and again, you just dive in and do it and hope it works. And you know, if it doesn't, then you change it and go, oh, that sounds funny. <laughs> so, yeah. So I know, you know, staying on your uh, arrangements for a second. Yes. Do you do you get dibs on arranging rights for new oh, songs? Oh God, I like, wish. Like Disney's Encanto, because I know you you were doing the new arrangements that are coming out for that, right? I, I'm doing one of one of four or five. Okay. And and that was pitched to to me. In fact, well, what I did is I inquired about. I said, are we doing anything from Encanto back in November when it first came out? And uh, you know, I listen through to the tunes, and I've got to be honest. I, you know, no one has a crystal ball on what's going to be a hit. Right. Uh, but, but Jesse said, "Well, we'd like you to do." Jesse uh, Weinberg is my sort of choral manager, and he said, "We'd like you to do the family madrigal." Uh, and you know, you basically go, "Okay." You know, and, you know, unless you have a, I really want to do such and such. I think Mac had been given uh, Mac Huff had been mm -hmm. assigned already the ballad, which he's very good at. Uh, but what's interesting is, so we did those two tunes, and then suddenly Bruno and Surface Pressure are getting the 
all the buzz. And so they were, Mark Brimer's doing one and a new young uh, ranger named Jack Zeno uh, is doing surface pressure. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, uh, sometimes it's the luck of the draw, <laughs> you know, uh, but it's, I wish I, I had a uh, right of first refusal <laughs> title, but you know, the, um, when Emily Crocker uh, was a director of Coral Publications, and I think Jesse does this to a degree. You try and you try and and be fair about the distribution amongst your sort of stable of contracted writers. Sure. Um, and uh, but it's hard. No one no one really knows what's going to work. And of course, with your contract writers, there's always advances that have to be recouped. So if if you're unrecouped, then there's a a, a potential or the encouragement to pitch you a song that, that they're going to recoup on because they've <laughs> already right. paid you for it and you don't want to end up upside down at the end of a year or at the end of a contract so sure yeah. so we we don't have cinnamon on our list to listen to later so i would be really interested to hear this story about how it got well to well the interesting thing is that um and this would have been i want to say the summer of 1976 and I'm, I'm still single. I haven't gotten married yet. So you're footloose and fancy free. And I'm downtown at the local Frosty. And Kirby says, hey, I'm going up to, to Edmonds, Washington, to this first, the Sound Station Jazz Camp, Frank DeMero. And uh, why don't you come on up? So, you know, it's summertime. I don't have a summer job. So I throw my guitar in the back of my car. And, and I, grabbed my, I grabbed three arrangements that I had done with my kids. Sinner Man, First We Must Be Friends, and... Um, I think it was People Gotta Be Free, I think it was. So one pop and two sort of originals or PDs. <clears throat> and I figure I'll take them along. You never know. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, Joyce Eilers was there at the camp. And so funny thing is the first day I said, Miss Eilers, would you look at my pieces? I really like yours and I think they fall in line. She said, I'd love to, but I'm going to a workshop right now. Uh, make sure and get me later in the week. Well, I didn't want to bother her. So the last day at camp is, is over, basically. They've done their big concert. Everybody's leaving. She grabs me and says, hey, don't you have some songs to play for me? And so literally drug a Fender Rhodes electric piano out of, out of a practice room. And we went through those three songs. And she literally said, where have you been all my life? This stuff is great. I want, I want to see it published. So she sent it to her friend, Art Jensen, who was a vice president of Hal Leonard. And uh, because Kirk, if I remember correctly, prior to this, Kirby had sent these pieces uh, with a cover letter into Hal Leonard to the choral director of choral publication, a fellow named John Trepp that you might be familiar with. He, he was in that uh, Northwest area and I think ultimately in, uh, in uh, uh, Vancouver in Canada. And uh, John said, I got a form letter that said, um, um, we like your pieces, but we don't have any place for them at the moment or some some kind of generic rejection letter so anyway joyce said oh these have to be published so she sends them to art jensen well about three months later he gets fired in a power struggle with keith mardak who ultimately bought the company and owned it and formed jensen publications and remembered uh -huh. me and needed choral music crazy and so he i i published 19 pieces that first year with uh with him including First You Must Be Friends and Sinner Man, which each sold 75,000 copies each. They were the biggest chorals of the year. That's so, fantastic. It, well, it just shows you, you know, a, a door closes, a window opens or something like yeah. that. And uh, um, yeah, so the confluence of things, you know, I heard a, I, I did an interview with the choir the other day and there was a gentleman, we did a QA at the end. He says, um, you know, um, what did he say? Coincidences are God's way of staying anonymous. <laughs> so, 
I tried that. Okay, that's cute. Yeah, maybe, maybe it is. Anyway, so quite a series of coincidences. Yeah. So I'm curious, since you since you you know producing twenty to thirty pieces a year, do you have a, a formula that you follow when you're working on a new piece? Do you approach composing and arranging similarly, or do you have different processes? You know, um, um, <clears throat> I'm sort of a one project at a time guy. Generally speaking, you mm-hmm. know, some people are able to keep a lot of things going. Uh, part of my Capricorn nature, I think that I have to sort of, sort of be organized. I, you know, uh, I'm not teaching any longer. So, uh, but, but even when I was, I would try and have regular hours. Um, generally, um, these days, you know, nine to three or four with a lunch break, five days a week, probably six or seven months out of the year, like August through February or so, because that's the big writing time. And then they get put into print for the summer promotion and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have a list um, of, of tunes that have that are titles that have either been approved or concepts that have been approved. You know, if I say, hey, I want to do a, a folk set, a contemporary folk setting of uh, Red River Valley. Is that OK with you? Yeah, that's fine. You know, do it and they trust me to that's going to be decent um and um or in some cases if i have a school commission you know i I try to get those things done first because oftentimes there's rewrite on a commission you know people it isn't what they they expected um i i'm sort of um i i I sort of um i want to say shy away from commissions generally It, it isn't really how i make my living like some composers do and I'm always concerned that it's not going to be what what the people want. Um, but anyway, so uh, I have a, a pretty regular uh, schedule. I, I map out usually a, a week for each title. Some are done in three days. You know, if you got a medley, it's two weeks. You know, particularly if it's got uh, instrumental parts mm-hmm. you know, with it. You know, it just takes more time to do. Um, <clears throat> but um, and I like to do a variety of things. I, I'm a little ADHD when it comes to uh, my. Uh, <laughs> you know, my personality. Uh, so, you know, I've done everything from, from little kid stuff, K4 kinds of musicals all the way up to sort of collegiate level, you know, vocal jazz, those kinds of things. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just abundantly grateful to have been able to do this. This is my 45th year. And in some ways I've had a resurgence. It's like uh, social media has, um, has been really good to me. I know it's yeah. got its downside, but um, particularly with a lot of new young teachers coming up um, who probably, you know, they sang my pieces and now they're right. going, oh, you're still alive? Well, we should do some <laughs> of those. <laughs> so, uh, no, I feel good. And, and I, you know, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on, on at least what I do. You know, I've often said that there are much more skilled arrangers out there and, and writers. I mean, Morton Larson and, and Ole Yalo and Dan Forrest and, and uh, you know, and, and in the jazz world, Darman Meter and Kirby and even Mac Huff and the and his big you know pop things. Um, uh, I don't know. I just I just do what I do. And my my pieces have always been uh, because of my experience, I suppose, and maybe my skill set have always been uh, the accessible. It's all about accessibility. How can I make the average group sound good and have yeah. it work? for the director. So they're not just going, Oh my gosh, we're never going to get this. Or, you know, it's like Darman's pieces. You get to that three quarter point and there's always 16 bars that you got to just work, 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 work on. <laughs> I, I seldom have those. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, yeah. Well, I love your pieces. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, 
I'm, I'm curious. You've mentioned working with Kirby Shaw. Yes. Uh, who are some of the other composers that have sort of influenced your, your writing or the direction of your career? Well, obviously Kirby's huge influence because, you know, he's a very practical writer too. Mm-hmm. His, his, his voice leading because he sings and plays. He's a wonderful trumpet player as well. And he's, he's very detail oriented, which I am not particularly, I, I have to work at it. I'm so glad that computerized notation came along because it made my work look good because my, my pencil manuscript, I'm left-handed, so I was smearing pencil all over <laughs> kind of thing. And Kirby's was always so good. When I was in his vocal jazz group, he'd pass out a chart at every rehearsal. It was the beginning of his career, and they were beautiful. And and so, obviously, Kirby's been an influence. Um, um, you know, I, I love I love Eric Whitaker's work. I mean, I think there's I've, there's some influences there. Um, uh, Morton Lauritsen for me, for my money, obviously contemporary is, is the real deal because it, not only is it harmonically interesting, but also melodically interesting, you know, it's easy to throw cluster chords together in finale and go, Hey, what do you think of this? Isn't this cool? Yeah. And there's some groups can pull it off, but for me, it doesn't stand the test of time. I think Morton's uh, pieces will because, uh, melody, I think melody stands mm-hmm. the test of time. Um, obviously, uh, those early uh, four freshmen, you know, and Hilos, you know, so Gene Perling, you know, all that close cluster harmony uh, is, you know, if, if the first chord of my first piece, Center Man, is a D minor nine. How many people start off these with that? But, um, and, and of course, instrumentally, I, I thought I was going to be a jazz guitarist. So, you know, listening to Herb Ellis and Howard Roberts and uh, and all those fabulous jazz guitarists, as well as my teacher, Lou Morell, um, it was very interesting. Kirby took me when I was in, in studying with him down to San Jose State and Don Pystrup, who's a wonder, wonderful orchestrator, uh, arranger, uh, put on a class. And uh, and it was the, my first time actually arranging on guitar. And and because um, it was like a three-day workshop. And, and I remember when they played my piece, he, he said, uh, are you a guitar player? <laughs> yes. He goes, guitar players make interesting arrangers. That was his. Huh. Even though the bulk of my work is now on keys, I'm not a great pianist. I'm a good, pretty good chord comper, uh, but the bulk of my work now is on, on keyboard. But sometimes I'll take up guitar if I'm writing something, particularly when we were when John Jacobson and I were writing musicals, you know, school musicals. I'd often get my guitar out because you write differently on guitar than you do on keyboard. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, those are my influences, and, and again, Debussy. Uh, if you, Shoshone Love Song, which I think is in the list you're it going is, to play yeah. later, uh, on the chorus. If you listen to the contrary motion, it's it's very Debussy like, and I'm sure that's from my mom play, playing Debussy on Sunday mornings. You know, so <laughs> yeah, I, because we're all we are synthesis. You know, yeah. we we're drawing all the time. Obviously. Now with pentatonics, you know, I've done some things. I really admire Ben Bram's work, who does the bulk of arranging for pentatonics. Uh, young guy, is, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm glad I'm not coming up now because the competition is stiff. Rob Dietz, all these great people, Deke Sharon, of course. Um, but but so if I'm, uh, you know, if I do Can't Hurry Love, I, ju- I just did this a couple years ago, you know, the old Supremes uh, number, all of pentatonics. So obviously you're, you're absorbing, okay, this is what, this is what Ben would do here. Yeah. <laughs> what would Ben do? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I got one more question for you before we take a break. Right. Uh, so outside of music, 
what sort of things do you do to relax? What sort of hobbies? Uh, do you? Um, well, you know, we live in the mountains of Northern California, Mount Shasta. So when the weather permits, paddle boarding is my my wow. wife and I. Mary is is a wonderful athlete and things. She's ten years younger, so she keeps me young. <laughs> but uh, you know, we did kayaking before that. I loved to snow ski. Loved loved to water ski. Although I don't water ski much anymore, we we paddle board a lot and mountain bike. We've got regular mountain bikes and e-bikes now. And uh, then I've got a stretch class and a spin class I do in the mornings uh, via Zoom these days uh, and some weight training. Um, I feel really good. You know, I often say I was not much of an athlete, so all of my joints work because all my friends who are, who are athletes are going, man, my, my knees and my shoulders. And I didn't have that problem because I, I didn't play. I wasn't any good. So uh, and then, of course, I love to read um, and and, uh, you know. I do a lot of Netflix watching and HBO and and those kind. There's so much content these days. Sure. And and it's the bulk of it. I mean, there's some really great stuff that you just have to admire from the writing and the cinematography and and those kinds of things. So uh, yeah, and we're homebodies. You know, I don't travel a lot because well, I travel during, with my work, if you call it work, my play. Um, but uh, my wife's not much of a traveler, so we live in vacation land. So we we stay here. <laughs> <laughs> and enjoy the beauty of Northern California. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll listen to some of Roger's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Roger Emerson. So let's talk today first about Shoshone love song. So you wrote the song based on a lovely Native American poem. And I'm curious about how you originally came to know the poem and how or why you decided to set it for choir. You know, I'd like to tell you a great story, but there is <laughs> there really isn't one. I, you know, um, I think Shoshone Love Song is probably about 20, 20 years old. And at the time, there was just there was, I want to say, sort of a major thrust in choral music to to uh, do some Native American uh, pieces. And I, I just went to our local library here in Mount Shasta. I mean, it's a little 400 square foot building. And uh, and went over to I think the poetry section and I think I think the book was called I've gone back and tried to find the book and it's no longer there and I'm kicking myself because you know when you when you know better you do better and I wish that I had got, gotten a lot of background information and things but I couldn't find the book but it was a little book and I think it was called Indian Songs mm. <laughs> you know uh, you know and a real old book because yeah. it's probably done in the twenties or or thirties. And I just paged through it, and, and you know, it's um, Shoshone, Shoshone Love Song, The Heart's Friend. And I thought, that that sounds really good. And it was short and sweet, and just the lyrics are just fabulous. And I literally, uh, I think I checked the book out and brought it home and sat at the piano, or the one behind me. So I like to write on a, on a grand piano, even though I input on a, you know, a digital keyboard. Sure. And, and I, I, I just sort of, I remember that intro just sort of came, the whole song came in maybe an hour. Wow. Um, and, and the good ones do, the, you know, it, it, again, I, I don't want to get into too, too crazy uh, spiritual kinds of things, but um, people often say, so where does it come from? And I was in a workshop, this is probably 10 years ago with Weston Noble who was, you know, it's one wonderful choral conductor. He must have been late 80s at the time. And he, he, he said something that just struck home with me. He said, that which is unexplainable is of the spirit. 
And that's mm. pretty big. I mean, spirit can be almost anything. And, and um, uh, I just feel, and, and Mount Shasta itself is one of seven harmonic convergence centers in, in the world. The New Age community considers it unusually special. Um, and uh, of course, with Kirby and I both coming out of here, Joe Jennings of Chanticleer, who taught here for a while, um, you know, it's it's a pretty uh, artistic place. And all I can say is it came quickly, and I'm just glad it did, because it is it is sort of, uh, you know, people know me as a pop arranger and sort of a pop, pop and jazz guy, but I really love choral music. And um, in fact, I think that the the three three of the four pieces that that you're going to play later um, or sooner, maybe you've already have, depending on how this is edited, um, are are really more choral. Uh, this uh, new "Stopping by Woods," which is of course the Robert Frost poem, which just recently came into public domain, so it's usable. Um, I'm very excited about because it's very choral, and yeah. I guess there's a part of me that that wants to be that Morton, Morton Lards. Morton Lards and Light. <laughs> Eric Whitaker, Light, I call myself. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I thought that was a great story about Shoshone Love Songs. So you did a very wonderful well, job. Well, it's, it's just sort of <laughs> short. And I, you know, I, I, I wish that I had uh, done more research at the time, um, but um, it's, it's, it's great. It's just great literature. And you All want right. to do justice to it. Well, we are going to take a moment here and we're going to listen to Shoshone Love Song for SATB Choir.
All right, next, let's turn to Red River Valley. You mentioned this piece earlier. So the melody for this piece is a traditional cowboy song, but you seem to be subverting all expectations for what a cowboy <laughs> song should be like. You've got a very modern interpretation. So I'd love to hear what you were aiming for as you wrote this about some of the choices you made along the way. Well, you know, I have a history of reharmonizing melodies. Again, you know, I mentioned earlier, for me, melody is everything. Well, mm -hmm. lyrics and melody are everything. And, and so um, I, I love the idea of reharmonizing. Of course, if you look at the lyric, it's, you know, it's, I mean, the song we know is, oh, come sit by my side if you, you know, boom, jump, boom, jump, boom, jump. Right. But if you look at the lyric, it's a very uh, poignant, heartfelt lyric about leaving, you know, the, the one you love. And so for me, it, it, it demanded being minor instead of major for starters. Uh -huh. And um, that's part of a, 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 a series, you know, um, I was with, uh, you know, of course, you've heard of Jim Papoulis, mm -hmm. and uh, we all love Jim's work, too. And he's got a lovely wife, Sophia, and I was doing a workshop with her uh, several years ago. And she goes, Roger, your music is purposeful. And, and I go, yeah, that's it. I'd never thought of that term purposeful, but I'm always trying to fill a niche. What does a choir director need that, that will quote unquote, solve the problem or be successful. And, and I'd often hear, you know, three part mix works up to this level, but then it, those C's and D's are too high for my guys. And, um, you know, there's a big controversy because some retailers, and one of the biggest ones in the country, which will remain nameless, Stadium <laughs> Pepper, puts everything under SAB, right. whether it's three part or SAB. And they're, they should be distinctly different. Because three-part mix is F to D, it's for that seventh and eighth grade, or six, seven, eight, where you got a, you know, eight guys and and forty gals, or eight tenor basses and forty soprano altos, and uh, it allows them something that they can sing. But real SAB for me is probably more C to C, a very mm -hmm. comfortable baritone range. And so what I my focus there, in addition to a, a cool reharmonization, was to to give the the baritones the melody all the way through that's all they sing is the melody yeah because we know what happens is that oftentimes at ninth grade or the second half of the eighth or tenth grade new high school you get some singers for the particularly baritone whatever you're going to call them young men who have not used the instrument so they're light years behind the soprano altos right and they gravitate to the melody so write them the melody and then <laughs> let it be enhanced by the soprano altos Sure. And so, and so I've got three pieces in that. I call it my series as true. I call it real SAB and that's uh, red river Valley, um, 900 miles and good news. And basically it's true baritone range where baritones have melody throughout. And so that was my uh, purposefulness. And then, you know, I, I sit at the keyboard and I sing the line and try some different chords and, uh, yeah, come come up with something that that oh yeah, that's pretty cool. Throw it into finale, play it back, and go yeah okay, that works. Or yeah, that's a little crunchy. Next, you know, <laughs> Jacob great. Collier has changed crunchiness. What what is crunchy? You know, he <laughs> right. can he he can reharm any any melody with any any as long as you're moving, you can just just keep moving. You know, so. <laughs> All right, well, we're gonna take a minute here. We're gonna listen to Red River Valley for SAB Choir. Oh, 
Next, we're going to go to Stopping by Woods. So this piece uses Robert Frost's well-known poem, uh, but again, in a different manner than one might expect. So I'm actually hearing more horse galloping sounds in this one than I did in Red River Valley. <laughs> and, you know, when I, when I first listened to this piece, I was actually reminded of some of the music from Act One of the musical Secret Garden. Ooh, so I was, I was wondering, were you, were you <laughs> looking for some sort of musical theater styling with this, or, or what were you going for? No, you know, the interesting thing, of course, I, I've loved the poem. It's one, I, I, I'm not good at memorizing, but it's one that I actually can, can sort of remember. And um, when it when it became PD, uh, and your listeners probably know public, that after the copyright expires, um, materials can move into the public domain, which means you can use them without permission of the copyright holder or payment. Uh, and, uh, you know, occasionally Hal Leonard will license something, but most of the time they like you to use free stuff. Right. So they don't want to pay any more money. You know, that's good business anyway. Um, so I sat at the piano, the one right behind you. Uh, and um, it was on the other side of the room at the time, but <laughs> that's another story. Anyway, um, and and I, I, I just I just started this this my idea, I felt like like I didn't want to do it in a ballad setting because everybody does. You know, if you're gonna do it, it's got to be a ballad. Uh uh And for me, it was that that horse and rider, bum 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 bum, bum almost a gallop, and it just sort of came together. It came together pretty quickly. The but I I wanted the again feeling a a debt you to to the intrinsic value of the lyric, of the poem, 
I didn't want to just do the first thing that came to my mind. I wanted to do the best thing that came to my mind. So I spent, I spent several weeks then working the piano part because I, I wanted it to be worthy of the lyric. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy to play. And in fact, I probably can't, can't play it in time, um, but it is playable. And I wanted it to, I wanted it to have the, the ethereal nature uh, of someone who has, who has ridden for the day, is tired, wants to get home, um, and, and the sort of dreamlike nature. And so there's a lot of, of sort of polytonal things going on. And, and I was, I was so gratified. I, I was, I was in sort of a, a virtual reading session and Philip Sylvie, and if any of you who are familiar with Philip Sylvie, I have great admiration for him. His 900 miles is a, is, is just a fabulous work. And, and he said, because he was listening as we were doing this session, and he just, he wrote the nicest uh, compliment about, this is such a refreshing treatment of uh, unexpected and refreshing. And so, yeah, it was, it was nice to know, you know, you, you still want to do do well <laughs> amongst your friends or yeah. your contemporaries. And uh, um, it, unfortunately, it came out right before the pandemic. And so it's, it had sort of a slow start, but it's one of my favorites. And that's why I, I suggested it to you. So. Yeah. Well, I agree. Unexpected and refreshing, I think, is a great Thank way to, to put that. So we are going to listen to this unexpected and refreshing setting of Stopping by Woods for SATB Choir. His house is in the village low. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the If there is some mistake The only other sounds The sweep of easy wind And downy flake Stopping by woods On a snowy Miles to go before I 
All right. Well, our last piece today is Waving Through a Window, and this is from the musical Dear Evan Hansen. So this, of course, is one of your amazing arrangements that you're known Thank for. You. Uh, so what are you given when you're working on a piece like this? Do you get the full score, a piano reduction? What do you what do you have? Are you just using your ear? It, it varies. Uh, sometimes it's just ear and you need to lift it. Um, but most of the time we will, we will get quote unquote, an approved lead sheet, uh -huh. meaning, meaning this is the one that Hal Leonard is going to use in their, uh, sheets and folios. Right. And, and therefore it has gone through any approval process by the writers. <clears throat> in this case, uh, uh, I, you know, I don't think Pasek and Paul do their own, but I think Alex Lacamoire does. And if you know Hamilton, then you know that Lin-Manuel Miranda's right-hand person is Alex Lacamoire. Mm -hmm. He's the he's the George Martin, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> of all the, he puts it together. Okay. And and so I think, if I recall, I think I had um, I had a lead sheet like that. It's been, you know, th what, three or four years ago. And of course, then I've got the recording. And and of course, whenever you're doing an arrangement, the, the reason I, I chose this one over "You Will Be Found," which turned out that Mac Huff did, which was a much better seller, uh, <laughs> um, is that a couple things. One is I had a lot of ballads that year in my offerings, so I didn't want to do another ballad. And I really thought this one spoke to kids about I'm unseen, uh -huh. I I need to be seen. But the whole show does really about wanting, you know, wanting to be seen. And, uh, and, and I just think it's, I think it's a neat tune. And so it was, um, uh, it was really fun to do. The recording's good. It's, it's a fun one to sing. And I think it, I think it has uh, something to say. So. so how do you figure out when you want to do a solo versus all unison mm -hmm. or a choral? I mean, what, how do yeah, those that, <clears throat> that's, that's always uh, a bit of a, you know, Ranger's dilemma. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, pardon me, as an educator, I want as many kids singing as much of the time as possible. Right. So I, I will tend, I will tend, I, I'll often put optional solo so that if you've got the horses, if you got the soloist, um, in, in the case of, for instance, uh, the family Madrigal in Encanto, there's a one figure, uh, there, there's one that demands a solo because in, that's the way it's done in the recording. And and it was time in, in the arrangement for a solo. You know, it's uh -huh. it's it's like your roadmap calls for it. But the but the the eight bars right before there, where I'd normally not put a solo, it's in the soprano. It's high and it's syncopated. And I said I'm going to put uh, Alan Billingsley, who does most of my uh, production of the recordings. I go, let's make that a solo because it's going to be hard for an ensemble to sing. Ba 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 ba. You know, sixteenth, eighth, sixteenth, eighth, sixteenth, tied to sixteenth, eighth, sixteenth, eighth. Right. Be easier for a soloist to come close. 
you know, which will do the job, quite frankly. It's musical yeah. theater. It, right. it, you know, you got to get away from the spots, but that's hard. We educators have a hard time. No, no, that's not the way it goes. <laughs> Look, it's that, 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 that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. That, and, and again, part of it is texture. You know, is, is it time for a solo or does, does it demand starting off with a solo and then going somewhere? Um, and, and again, I, 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 I cheat a little bit by going optional solo so that, you know, you got the teacher has some options. And of course, the arranging process, fortunately, I try and stay in the original key if the if the melody will, will work for your average voices. Sometimes I'll put things down a step. Uh, if I feel that, man, that's just hovering up there too high, the kids, most, most groups will not sound good there, but you know, um, by the same token, you don't want them down in the gutter either where it doesn't speak. So. All right. Well, we're going to take some time here and listen to waving through a window from dear Evan, dear Evan Hansen, uh, for SATB choir. to slam on the brake before I even turn the key before I make the mistake before I lead with the worst of me give them no reason to stare no slipping up if you slip away so I got nothing to share no I got nothing to say step out step out of the sun if you keep Do you ever really crash or even make a sound? When you're falling in a forest 
make a sound. Roger, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Um, well, you know, we're, we're sort of done with this batch of songs. Um, realize we published so little last year during the pandemic, right. we sort of have a carryover of about six or eight things. Um, and, and of course, the Encanto stuff was, I think, the latest thing you know, that, that we've done. And currently, you know, uh, what I do this time of year is I start planning new projects. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm delighted. I just, fin I just finished a book. I'm going to put a, <laughs> like most talk shows, put in a plug for a book oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, called, it's called Choralisms, Things I Learned from the Masters and Friends. And it's published by Pavon. It's, in fact, it's going to be in print for ACDA Western uh, here in about three weeks. And it's, it's just, it's about a hundred pages of, of history and musings and, you know, little one pages on Jester Hairston that I, I had a wonderful relationship with and Howard Swan and some of the choral greats. And then it's, it's my friends. It's John Jacobson and Mac Huff and little publishing stories. Um, and I, I'm real excited about it because it's, um, you know, it's nice to sort of, chron you know, it's my 45th year. It's nice to at least have a, a chronicle of, of what you've done and what you feel passionate about. And so, um, yeah, I've been doing proofs on that. And, and quite frankly, right now, if you could see my desk, I'm working on a, on a, on a general, sort of a general music. I, I, I often see teachers on Facebook going, um, man, I, um, I need something to, to fill the gap here. You know, we don't want to sing this day and or we're come off of a concert. And we'd like to have something to do or I've got a general music class that I just can't control uh, a lot of that. You know, I've got a lot of kids lumped in here that don't really want to sing or anything. So it's it's sort of a uh, it, currently uh, it's called like um, <clears throat> name that song or the song game. And it and it's it's where the it's where uh, the kids have like five excerpts. And then the teacher plays five recordings and they have to match which which notation excerpt hmm. goes to the recording. And so in the beginning, it's just, it's I'm gonna say sort of easy because I want them to just see long and short and high and low. So they don't really have to know notation, right. but then the next level, you start bringing them into, okay, what's the beat? And so what's that rhythm there and how do you, so it gets progressive, you can make it progressively harder as it goes. So it's, um, and we're using existing Hal Leonard recordings. Realize Hal Leonard has 30 years of recordings. Right. And of course they love it when you use existing recordings because it's cheaper, Right. you know? <laughs> I mean, that's the big expense, quite frankly, in publishing now with self-publishing. It's all about recordings, you know, from a cost standpoint. So that's, I'm, I'm excited about that, but they're 24 five song lessons. So it's a, <laughs> that's going to take me a while sure. and I'm doing a spreadsheet. So the teacher knows what concepts are taught in, in a given 
uh, song, you know, so they can decide what they're going to teach or inform the students. So yeah, trying that's to, excellent. Yeah, fun. So where can my listeners learn more about you? What's your website? Are you on social media? Yeah, uh, well, rogeremerson.com. Uh, in fact, I'm having a new website built um, that should be even better, hopefully, um, because I really wanted it to be the hub for some other websites. I have like sing678.com, which um, is really, uh, I've got a book called Sing678, and it it I laid the website out as sort of instructional. So if you're teaching middle school and don't know where to start, start here, mm. try this, boom, boom, boom. If that doesn't work, try this resource, etc. Uh, so it'll be a hub for sing678.com, uh, of course, rogeremerson.com. Then we have uh, our um, a self-published musical called Zombies the Musical. Uh, Hal Leonard no longer publishes musicals because the recordings are so expensive. So John Jacobson and I self-published Zombies. So you can get it on J.D. Pepper or at allschoolmusic.com. And then... Um, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to get uh, my my YouTube channel and Facebook sort of better aligned. I hope there'll be maybe a button there. But you, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I've got 5,000 friends. I've I've reached the limit on my Facebook account, and I have sort of a quote unquote fan ac- account, whatever that is. But I'm not cross posting yet, so uh, I don't know. I'm not and Instagram cross posts to Instagram, so I don't know. And you can always message me. And the easiest way to get to me, if you go to rogeremson.com, it says contact us. It's just me. So hit it and it sends me an email. And you know, if you have a question about something out of print or would really like to see an arrangement of this or those kinds of things, so um, yeah, that's excellent. Well, hey, listeners out there, I know that there have been many new listeners joining us for the past couple of months. So I just want to say quick hello to all of you. As of this recording, Movable Dough has been heard in 49 countries around the world. Thank you for helping make this podcast such a success. If you're enjoying today's interview, please share it with a few of your friends. Let them know about Roger Emerson and about Movable Dough. Well, Roger, it has been an absolute honor to talk to you today. Thank you oh, for yeah. joining me on Movable Dough. You are most welcome. This is a real treat for me. And, and thank you for all of you out there who have sung my music over the years. And uh, I, I hope it's brought you great joy, as it has me. All right, my guest today was composer Roger Emerson. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. 